Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. For those of you just tuning into the show for the first time, here at Conquering Columbus, we interview people from all around the city that are conquering their field, whether that be in business, science, athletics, or more. This is episode 118 of the show, and there seems to be no end of amazing individuals for us to talk with. Today, we have Rob Zwink and Lily Farhandi from Safe Chain joining us in an episode I think you'll really enjoy. Before we get to that interview, we want to take a quick moment to thank some special people that help keep Conquering Columbus running. And I want to start by talking a little bit about Molly Ross. Molly helped to design the brand for Conquering Columbus, and she's got a lot of great examples of her work on her website, mollyross.com, which will be linked in the show notes. So if you've got any graphic design needs, be sure to check her out. Let her know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26, we interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high flying VC backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at GoFMX.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. 
Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. We've got a special episode today. We're going to be talking all things blockchain with Rob Zwink and Lily Farhandi from SafeChain. And Rob is the Chief Technical Officer and Co-Founder at SafeChain, while Lily is the Director of Technology Operations. She was a software engineer and business analyst by trade, and Lily's been instrumental in the delivery of the recent auditor portal success and a large vendor integration. Like I mentioned, Rob is the co-founder and chief technical officer at SafeChain, which focuses on developing technologies to help increase efficiency of title closing while decreasing liabilities via multi-factor authentication and blockchain technology. We're really excited to have both of them here on the show. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I appreciate being here. Yeah, Thank we're, you. We're excited to have both of you here today. So how's your day been going so far? Well, uh, it's going well. I stay pretty busy, kind of hour by hour. We spent some time in um, a local government office, so we're still very much at a high pace. You know, mm-hmm. um, we had a recent success with the auditor, but it is um, another step in the right direction. So we just keep the pace up and go, go, go. So yeah, pretty pretty high pace day, mm-hmm. um, but happy to be here. Lily, hey, Lily how was your day? <laughs> Pretty busy, as always. Um, I live in D.C. I'm based out of Washington, D.C., and I travel to Columbus often for Safe Chain. And so when I'm here, I'm usually room to room to talk to people and, you know, get answers or um, answer questions that I can. So it's busy. Which I can say we were at a meeting earlier that ran over and Lily missed her flight. So, oh. <laughs> yeah. so we got like, really lucky. Right? Yeah. So, and this is the consequence. Right. Now you You'll got to get us. <laughs> so do you like D.C.? I know. So I used to live in Fairfax area. Oh. So my dad worked at the Pentagon when I was very young. So um, do, you, do you like D.C. though? I really like it. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I live in Logan Circle now. And I love that I can walk everywhere and everything is so close. So, yeah. You ever see yourself uh, re? I don't know why I'm like missing the word. Relocating. Relocating. There yeah. you go. I'm also tired today. Relocating <laughs> to Columbus. You know, Safe Chain has been very, very adamant about convincing me. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't been successful yet, but you know, never say never. Um, not soon though. Mm-hmm. Probably I, I have family there. It's kind of the same reason why. I'm in Columbus. It's like when you get roots, you know, and you get deep roots, it, it's hard to imagine moving somewhere else. Um, so let's kind of talk about, we'll take it back and then um, figure out how those roots got planted. Maybe talk a little bit about, you know, your upbringing. Um, we could talk all the way through college and what you studied and then kind of take our way to our path to where we are today. Um, maybe if you want to kick it off, Rob. Sure. Um, I grew up in Marion, Ohio, which is about an hour north of Columbus. I moved to Columbus in 1996. Uh, in order to uh, go to school. You know, coming from Marion, I, um, it was difficult to kind of navigate how to go to school, <laughs> frankly. So uh, I ended up working. So I, in 1996, I got a job uh, working for Microelectronics, the company that owns Micro Center, repairing laptop computers. So I you know, had an aptitude for electronics. I taught myself computer programming. I kind of quickly went into um, creating websites for people, you know, back in the late 90s, you know, if you could make websites, you could, you know, find a way to make money. So um, I uh, put my, you know, college on hold while I, um, you know, frankly kind of matured a bit, figured out how to work, make money. And then I ended up at Lucent Technologies uh, when it was, you know, big and on Broad Street. 
you know, at the time, it was like 1999, I was making $31.51 an hour, 50 cents an hour, which was just like, blew my Marian mind, you know? <laughs> like they offered overtime, so I worked all the overtime I could. And um, so it, it, I guess the, the main story of my entry into Columbus was applying, you know, everything that I had learned and sort of the, the work ethic that kind of came with working through high school and beyond to um, learning everything I could about technology, programming languages, databases, and all the stuff that came with it. And college came eventually, I'm assuming? It did, yeah. I actually um, worked my way through microelectronics. So I you know, was the, one of the principal programmers behind microcenter.com. And the, all, so I walk into microcenter today, and I see still product station and all these rebate station things that I worked on way back in the day. Um, but then I got a job at J.P. Morgan. So I got a job at J.P. Morgan with essentially a quarter of college at Columbus State. Uh, and then I benefited from their um, tuition reimbursement. It took me 11 years to get a bachelor's degree from Franklin. <laughs> like, uh, it became part of who I was. I mean, on weekends or on Wednesdays, I would either be in a class or do a, a web, you know, some kind of web class. And uh, yeah, I eventually got a computer science degree from Franklin to put a check in that box. And, you know, at this point in my career, I've given a decent amount of presentations and, you know, even some keynotes and things of that nature. Like, the path that I took was a very applied computer science path, but there is an academic one as well. And eventually having had an opportunity to uh, do both at the point in my career where I was, was very helpful. Like, and, I, and I think it was something that happened at a time when I was kind of ready for it to happen. It was uh, when I made the decision not to go to school, um, it was one because you know, I could get a job. A lot of people go to school to get a job, you know, I, but I ultimately, going to school to learn, to like really uh, understand the state of the art and understand how to push it forward uh, happened at the time when I was ready for that to happen. And I assume there's no masters on their way, that'd be, that might be like a... You know, every now and again I consider it, you know, my, um, my wife worked at OSU for a handful of years, so it was like, you know, something we could have done. Then just comes down to opportunity cost and where you want to spend your hours. You know, there's all kinds of things that are interesting in the world, like, you know, I do almost distill it down to one hour at a time and I feel like uh, kind of motivated enough to continue learning you know one day yeah one day I think a master's for me would be a path to teaching which is something that you know could happen one day and I think when that happens I would do that definitely yeah, yeah. And, and Lily so what about what about you let's talk a little bit about what your life was like growing up how you ended up in DC kind of the whole story sure so I was um, born and raised in Tehran, Iran, so halfway across the world. And um, I, I was very like, different than you. I was very, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I chose math major in um, high school. That's what you have to do. You have to choose ma uh, majors in high school and then went straight to um, computer engineering. So started in University of Tehran, and then transferred to Purdue in Indiana. Okay. So finished there in double degree, um, bachelor's in computer engineering. And then I started working at Accenture in Minneapolis, and then after a year, kind of wanted a change, wanted to move to DC to a bigger city, so that's when I moved yeah, to DC. I guess I'm curious, what what was that college experience like? Like, I mean, you switched from University of Tehran to Purdue. Was there a big difference there in terms of environment or 
learning like so a lot of times with overseas schools there's even huge differences in the way that they take exams and and that sort of thing so what was the uh, transition like there so I spent about two and a half years in University of Tehran and then transferred to Purdue for another two years and when I was back in Iran, it was very, very difficult. I was struggling. The courses were very hard. And the problem was that we went to every single class. We tried to go to every single class. And we listened, took notes, like did practice everything, did projects, and went to the TA sessions, everything that we could do. But then when the exam came, they were in a whole nother level. It was so difficult to get good percentage on the exams. So it was very difficult. But then, you know, <laughs> it ended. And then I transferred to Purdue, and it was basically then it was easy because if I went to the class, if I listened, and I, if I did the practices, I knew that the exam is going to be, I'm going to ace it. It's not going to be difficult. What was that high school experience like that you had to declare a major in high school to work your way up there? Did you get like very focused and granular in what your major chose? So in Iran, how it is, is that high school, when you start high school, you need to choose between math, science, literature, or art. Those three like main buckets. And then you can, you can switch when you go to college, but if you go and study science, then the focus is obviously biology and all of that, so you won't get that much exposure to math and physics. And then if you wanna go to engineering majors in college, then you have to go through this very difficult four-hour um, entry exam for all the colleges, and you won't. You'll be competing to people that went through math major in high school, and your chances are low obviously. So what we think of as one of the hardest engineering schools in the United States is <laughs> actually not even remotely that difficult to a school <laughs> in Tehran. So yeah, when you went no. to D.C. and you left the center, what, did you take another position there or did you just go on a whim? No, at that time I was in management consulting Accenture and I was traveling to New York a lot. You know, my business case was that I'm traveling to New York, and if I move to D.C., it's going to be um, less cost, and, you know, I can be more available to you because you want me in New York, and they accepted it right away. So you kept the same clients, uh, ended up in New York a lot, I did. despite living in D.C. Yep. Okay. J.P. Morgan was mainly the client that I worked on, and that's how I met him on a project. So that's an interesting story. You guys both met at J.P. Morgan then, and how did the relationship kind of blossom from that point? A lot of people don't necessarily know J.P. Morgan has its largest technology hub in Columbus, Ohio. So of their 45,000 employees like that are in technology, 10% are here. So a lot of people have experience or know someone who's a VP or in various degrees of like their career at J.P. Morgan. So in, in thinking of creating a startup, leaving a perfectly reasonable job that I had. You know, I was executive director. I had like, or I was an executive director. I had a, a hundred employees, you know, a $15 million annual budget. Like I was, you know, for the most part, like doing just fine. And uh, thinking about instead, can I take my 
interest in blockchain and create with a, a partner a company that can you know change how real estate title transactions work i went to my i don't know if they would call it a rolodex anymore it was probably just like on my phone you know like my contacts list <laughs> and uh, i was like who can possibly help me pull this off and uh yeah lily and i had worked on a project it had, it had been five six years ago previous to that decision so i mean i just over my career 13 years you know i'd had to list of folks. I figured um, if I brought someone over, frankly, from Accenture, it wouldn't get me in trouble. And, uh, you know, how can I bring the top people I've worked with in my career to the startup? Um, when Lily accepted, though, it, like there's a, there were really with every engineering hire that we've had over the last 12 months, it's de-risking our ability to deliver this 30 second property transaction. Yeah, Lily was, I think, the second one we hired and it was a huge relief because, you know, because of that and the you know, the, the discipline, the things you learn in Accenture management consulting um, are incredibly valuable. So, yeah, I just, uh, I maintained a list of people that if I'd ever had a chance to start a company, I'd want to reach out to. And uh, apparently, you know, I don't know, I guess I must have made an impression. Yeah, so he reaches out. <laughs> what, what, what was it that made you say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and I'm, I'm going to jump and join SafeChain? Um, so I was... Almost seven years at Accenture, and probably the last year of it, I started thinking, you know, I, I think I need a change. It, there's a lot of hierarchy that doesn't make me decide what I want to do, um, and it's um, pushed on me, and I don't get to decide. For example, I started. Uh, at a blockchain project with another company that we partnered with, Digital Assets, and we worked um, at Fannie to deliver a POC, and I was really excited about it. Um, but, you know, obviously, we I worked on it for about six months, but since it wasn't going as fast as Accenture wanted, they kind of came out of it. So. I started looking around and, you know, thinking about other companies and moving on, and it was just perfect timing for SafeChain. Yeah. It's seven years in management consulting, but that's a long run. Like, from what I understand, it's usually like two or three years, and then you decide whether you want to pivot your career. There's not a lot of people that stay in there that long, is there? I mean, unless you really want to make a career out of just being a management consultant. I enjoyed learning and I think especially management consulting, I was learning a lot. I came from, you know, a lot of technical background and mathematics and, and programming where you don't, especially in school, you don't talk to a lot of people and you don't learn anything about business. And I was learning a lot. I was learning a lot of communication and customer management and client management. Um, so it was very interesting for me. And I guess, you know, it, two years wasn't enough. I wanted more. <laughs> um, just starting yeah. to gain the business aspect of it too. Which, and then, you know, just the different attributes kind of made you stick around. Yeah, I started as a programmer there. So I was hired as a programmer. And I started that. But then little by little, you know, different projects that they put me on. I was exposed to the business side of things and learning and getting exposure was very interesting to me because it was the first time I was seeing, like being in meetings with 
senior leadership and learning how to start with learning how to take good notes. And so, Rob, you wanted to continue your passion for blockchain and make it something, you know, more of uh, an actual career. Did you know exactly how you wanted to apply it? And maybe that starts with us actually letting our listeners and Mike and I on our very naive <laughs> understanding of the subject understand what blockchain is in the first place. Yeah, let's just start with that. What is the blockchain? Sure. I don't think it's the either. It's not like yeah. like like when your parents say the Facebook. Right, the Facebook. That's just, what I feel like. I'm like the old guy who doesn't know what it is. So it's he just the Facebook. We'll yeah. start on what is blockchain. That's what I go with. Right. Which so in 2009, there's this white paper that comes out that describes a decentralized form of value, Bitcoin. That this white paper, you know, puts forward that. You know, you could effectively, uh, with this white paper and implementing it, you could end up with a, um, a new type of currency. If you bring up that white paper, you know, I think it's called Bitcoin. It's, uh, you know, it's now famous for, you know, the author is unknown and um, it's an academic paper. I mean, it's not an easy read, but it was clear that what it described was more than just um, a way to in a decentralized way, transact value. Like it was, uh, it actually solved this problem that the computer scientists have been striving to solve since the '60s. This thing, it's a, it's like Byzantine emperors, uh, Byzantine generals problem. So this uh, problem since the '60s, like when you think about the computer programs you interact with today, many of them reflect. Uh, systems and design patterns that were like literally invented in the 60s. I mean, things are smaller, things are faster, like instead of walking into a room and interacting with a mainframe computer, like it's in your pocket, but it's still a mainframe computer in your pocket. Like the things, the, the GUI, the, you know, the mouse, like the human computer interaction, like it's all relatively well-defined. It's just faster, better, cheaper. But here comes this new technology that says, you know, that problem that has been really difficult to solve, like we think we've nailed it. And uh, they did, you know, like Bitcoin, you know, regardless of its price or its utility has like a 99.99999 uptime. Like it's, it's, it's been more available than, uh, you know, large banks as far as their computer systems go. So I became uh, interested in it for non-cryptocurrency use cases. And to go back to kind of what it is, this uh, Byzantine general's problem says that um, if you have multiple kind of people involved in a transaction, it's impossible to um, know if you can truly trust them all. One of them can be compromised, one of them can be dead. <laughs> you know, if you go and say, attack the city, you don't know if they're going to do that or not because of like latency and just problems and just hops around communication. So the blockchain creates this uh, ledger effectively. It's this ledger that everyone can look at and everyone can be relatively assured over a very short period of time that it's accurate. So anyone can look at it. Um, in it are um, transactions, which transactions are tran the same type of transaction that I think many of us can imagine. It's like it has a date, a time, and it has uh, information about what happened on that date and time. So if there was a transaction that said attack the city, and everyone could look at it and be guaranteed within, you know, like again, there's some tolerance and there are some issues, but like generally better than any other system had ever been around since 2009 uh, that says it is accurate and you can trust this. That's a, it's kind of a 
metaphor. Uh, it's a high-level explanation. It's still very technical. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I am the CTO of SafeChain, so I can't help but be a bit nerdy on these things. But um, the uh, yeah, the reality is that yeah, blockchain provides a fairly technical underlying database that if you know how to use it, you can do something that was not possible until 2009, which is it's 2018 now, so that's less than 10 years ago. Someone figured out a very, very difficult problem, and uh, they were right. So the ultimate goal <clears throat> when applying it to different use cases is to just make it a more secure platform to operate off of, basically, an underlying structure. Right. That provides more visibility to anybody who's involved with that particular situation. Right. Like, if, if, if we wanted to pay one another directly, traditionally, we would use a third party, a bank, and we would say, uh, I'm going to take $1 out of my $10 and give it to you. And you'd be like, I, how do I know you have $10? Well, uh, if we truly don't trust one another, and I think many people would go into that not trusting one another, you'd ask the bank. And, we, and I would ask the bank. We would agree that the bank can be trusted. We, like the bank has laws. It has all kinds of things that require it to be trustworthy. If you could instead imagine a computer program that is owned by no one. It's decentralized. It, it just it exists because everyone who's participating in it, in it make it exist. We could both look at that database and say, I have ten dollars. I'm going to give you one of them, and you're going to accept it. And now I have nine, so I can't double spend. You know, these are all these kind of complicated levers that are in place to kind of make that machine work. You know, and for anyone who owns Bitcoin or transacts in it, like it does work. Uh, it, you know, again, I, I, my, I still have to caveat like it. Uh, there's still challenges, but um, then imagine, well, you know, wow, like that's like interesting to think about. Like this decentralized database that's owned by no one that exists because we all participate in it. You know, what else could you do with it? I had a number of different ideas about what to do with it. Like, um, you know, I ended up with a couple patents pending at J.P. Morgan related to it. You know, I became almost kind of near obsessed with the other things you could do with it. I went through Rev1. They called it Concept Academy at the time, which was like a, you know, three days of training. Became like, convinced that I can't do it alone. You know, I, I, I have a very, I have a very solid appreciation for product development, surveying, like getting out in front of customers. But I also, I have an appreciation for it. But what I'm like really good at is building software and systems and, um, you know, applying technology. So I'm like, I have to find a business partner. <laughs> what were some of your initial ideas on how to apply it? One was peer-to-peer uh, -peer employment, which is like one of the stranger ones. But if I talk about it enough, you'd be like, oh, it could work. But like you think about um, the, you know, gig economy and how we could imagine a future where people are being paid in like partial income. You know, they might have five different employers I think the gig economy, gig, gig economy, mobile apps accommodate for us, like a giving workers access to work, but not necessarily the um, legal protection that uh, properly employing these folks would have. So I think there's an opportunity to create a decentralized smart contract that effectively implements like local uh, laws related to like tax withholdings and other types of compliance related issues. You know, if you were to hire somebody to like in a gig economy to work for a couple hours doing something in a regulated field, like having the um, 
structure in place to ensure that they were compliant with whatever local laws required versus just paying them cash. So I lost, you know, I don't, I could go down a rabbit hole on uh, peer-to-peer employment and the, the potential for smart contracts. I think it's on the list of where blockchain will end up. It's probably ninth on the list. I had another one for um, corporate internal spending. So like for large, large corporations, there's an internal accounting department that counts how many phones have been on people's desks and charges the department that has those phones, you know, $5 a month because they have a phone. I think all of that could be like automated, completely automated with uh, uh, smart contracts. I mean, there's uh, energy applications, you know, solar panels and uh, selling back energy to your neighbors. Like right now you go to the utility company that's state regulated to sell energy back to the person who lives right beside you. But if you happen to have a solar panel and they're willing to pay you for it, that's another one. Um, I think a lot of the blockchain startups that imagine um, healthcare applications uh, are well-intentioned, but there's just a lot of issues with sharing data in healthcare that would be, you know, that would push it down the list of, but I, I think it'll get there eventually. So I want to just be transparent and admit to you that I still don't think I fully understand blockchain. However, yeah. I'm trying hard to mm-hmm. understand it as you're relating it to these concepts, and mm-hmm. it's interesting. But if we pull it back and we yeah. go back to SafeChain, um, how does that concept evolve, and how do you realize that you're going to apply it to real estate? Uh, have you ever have you ever gone to the Franklin County Auditor's website to, to look at a property and its value? Mm-hmm. Like on it, it has a transfer history, mm-hmm. so you can see how much the person paid, how much they, the previous owners paid. You can start to see this chain of title effectively every time it was transacted and how much the parties paid. Um, that is a ledger. It's a ledger that exists that um, the auditor authorizes and the recorder by their, by Ohio law, codifies. SafeChain is working with government agencies on how can we make that process more efficient. And we trust that ledger because of Franklin County Auditor, is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the third party that Right, so let me see if I got this. I think I get it. And I'm probably gonna make a fool of myself, but I think I got it. He says this with his hands over his eyes and his head so down. So I'm, really I'm really thinking happily, but the blockchain, there are two keys to the blockchain. Number one, it's a ledger. It records transactions regardless of what those transactions are, whether that's an actual like Bitcoin where it's like representing a monetary value or in a ledger of housing transactions or title transactions. And the key is that it's decentralized. So there's no government entity to say, yes, this is correct. It's just known that it's correct because of the way that it is designed and coded. Because of a set of algorithms or? Right. Yeah. I think if you, and, and I would, I would add like some, at least some color to it, which is to say, um, you still may need a government to oversee that mm-hmm. uh, everybody involved is doing what they said they were going to do. You know, I mean, once you've defined what that is, then everybody has to play fair. Right. But if you if you think about Bitcoin specifically, which I think is something people are generally familiar with now, and and you imagine behind the scenes, there's just this paper ledger like you know imagine a paper ledger like this account is transferring information to this account like that's all that it is you know is this long 
sequential list of this person did this, this person did this, this person did this. And if you ever want to know how much Bitcoin a person has, the only way to know that is to go through that entire list and figure out what they started with and how many, how much they've transferred to, and then you can get the uh, amount that they have. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, behind the scenes, you know, this uh, concept of um, accounting, accrual-style accounting, like debits and credits, you know, it was, like, invented by the Venetians, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> hundreds right. of years ago, you know? <laughs> like, it's just a, a, a super-efficient way to do that type of accounting yeah. that uh, no longer requires a person with, like, a feather quill and, and a, like, parchment to, like, write it all down. It's, it's computerized. It's fully digital. It's distributed. And it, yeah. And so what else could you put in a ledger if you had one of those styles of ledgers. And, and it's, you know, not everything. I mean, certainly uh, there's some things I, you know, like that are, like if it's if it's a super private thing, you don't want to put in there, you know, you right. wouldn't put that in there, you know, but if you wanted to put say a public record in there, you know, like something that is already public. Um, so Lily, I want to talk to you. So I want to talk about how you got involved with blockchain. You mentioned you got the chance to do some consulting on it at Accenture. So how you got involved with it, what made you excited about it? and how you've kind of grown and what you've done with it today with SafeChain. Sure. So mine is, I think, a little bit different than every person that I have talked to so far about blockchain. Mine started with learning about blockchain. I I didn't know about Bitcoin. I had no idea what Bitcoin is. Maybe I have heard it, but I didn't know what it is. And it was probably four years ago or something, you know, at Accenture, they, they started talking about it, and then little by little, they, they had this innovation labs that focused on new technology and everything, and al- always had very interesting um, articles and resources to read. So um, one focus became blockchain and blockchain pilots and projects and everything. And so it started from there, and I got more involved in that Um, innovation lab and then the main part of it was that you know I reached out to some people and I said I want to get on a project that we're doing something and it was the POC with Fannie Mae and um, digital assets that are in New York now. And then how does that involve into your um, path to safe chain and kind of what influence have you had there and their products? So I also felt like blockchain is the future and I want to be involved and stay involved in it and so at that point I felt like I want to be at a company and a project that is going to continue working on it and and apply it so which which you know could be a good point to mention you know we have uh like SafeChain is a blockchain company striving to create a 30-second property transaction. There is no single smart contract that will result in a 30-second property transaction. Like we have effectively identified eight different stages of the process that will benefit from blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, as we are, as we kind of grow as a company and as we move forward with like successful implementations. Um, we get closer and closer to having all of those eight complete, and then we'll have this 30-second property transaction. 
And uh, you know, of the 25 people now who work at Safe Chain, um, everyone has kind of a role towards moving the needle on each one of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I should clarify, I'm not like, is that the role of Lily has at the company is to make sure that each one of those eight things kind of stay on track. Right. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about that because I know you recently uh, conducted a pilot with Franklin County Auditors and you mentioned testing some of these things out. What was that like? What were you testing out? If you can talk about it. Yeah. And, and can you talk about that process? Yeah. I'll start. Sure. The, um, well, first, I want to recognize like the Franklin County Auditor's Office and Auditor Clarence Mingo. The success we had there was in large part due to their commitment to exploring this technology and understanding how it can affect the folks in Franklin County. So it was um, just an amazing engagement. The, um, the opportunity that we had was structured as let's first learn about blockchain by doing. There's a lot of folks who learn about blockchain by talking and reading. Like we wanted together as a joint development to really let's figure out how we can create a pilot, a meaningful pilot. Uh, we identified that once a year they do a annual they do an annual forfeited property auction that uh, you know they they do they spend a lot of time making sure that it um, goes off without a hitch like they're you know they they have a very well oiled machine that creates an opportunity for citizens of Franklin County to essentially recover uh, put properties back into inventory mm-hmm. so if they're uh, in arrears on their taxes that means uh, the auditor is not or the treasurer is not receiving the tax dollars. The auditor puts it back into inventory, and uh, there were 37 properties this year. Uh, one was uh, redeemed before the auction, so there were 36 properties auctioned. Uh, buyers of the properties, you know, the winning bidders, received a special kind of deed this year, a deed that um, was produced by software that SafeChain developed. On, on the bottom of these deeds is a, is a special type of barcode that maps directly to a smart contract on Ethereum's mainnet. So all of the interesting kind of bits that are in a deed are um, stored directly. And then the actual deed itself is stored in this um, special type of data storage called IPFS or interplanetary interplanetary file system. So um, anyone who receives that deed in the future forever can read that barcode and um, digitally retrieve it so they can compare the physical copy to this electronic copy that they can feel confident uh, hasn't changed and if it has changed say the physical copy did change like that doesn't happen a lot in Columbus Ohio but it can happen in other uh, parts of the world Um, you can now compare the two you can see that there was a it's immutable now um, and it also ties back to its previous instance, so you can begin to create a chain of title uh, from that moment in time. Huh. Interesting. And so, Lily, what what are you what are you doing to keep these guys on top of all this while this is all going on? Like, I, I get all the technical stuff, but like, what does this project look like from a operations perspective? Um. Oh, I don't know where to start. <laughs> so many things. Well, I think with any technology. Um, slash application development project. It starts with the idea. And part of my my job and my work is to work with everyone, work with the product team, work with the engineers to break that idea down to tangible, feasible, um, codable components. And 
I, I consider myself successful when there is a component that a developer can take, can read it, can see the mock-up and understand it completely and is clear and can code it and deliver it in a couple of days. And so for me, it's one part is that. Um, second part, you know, obviously is to work with the developers to answer their questions and help them deliver on schedule, on time, and then if there's any issues, try to resolve. And then also, you know, as a second, I guess, stage of application development is once the coding is done, for me to test it or help the testing team make sure that it's fully tested, all the scenarios, everything that can go wrong is fully tested, we are aware and bugs are fixed and then move it so to production so that the customers can use it. Okay, so you're kind of calling the shots, you're telling everybody, okay, this is how I want to break this down and if you can help me code this, is that sound about right? Pretty much. Obviously, the market research team and the product team mm -hmm. will bring in the ideas, um, and then it's working with them to understand it completely and, and mark an idea uh, as a feature that is complete. Which, you know, we um, have brought together a team of pretty talented people, like very proud of the team. So there's a lot of, um, like, skilled folks that I think ensuring that they're kind of all following the same plan not necessarily as hard as some projects you know it's effectively uh making sure that the communication channels are still open right and then i'd say th there is a other there is another half of that job which is where like uh lily and i do most of our work together which is a cadence around meeting with the client you know like we have every other day a quick checkpoint we have a weekly meeting where we do our showcase and answer questions or ask questions uh, to make sure everybody's feeling good about our momentum. This is a four-month project, so uh, you know, if you imagine a four-month project, just want to make sure that it uh, doesn't all get done at the end or you know, that we're all kind of on the same page as to where we are. So the market research teams bring back ideas, and you said you had these eight core parts of the um, title process that, or title mm -hmm. process is the right wording that you guys want to convert over into your technology, what is the market research team out there looking for? Like in their head when they're going out there, what are they trying to figure out that they can convert back into your technology? Yeah. Um, you know, we have we have this image we've uh, passed around, which is this painting of a mountain in the distance. And there's uh, like, we kind of have these arrows that represent switchbacks. And uh, we had a pretty good meeting where we talked about a metaphor related to hiking. You know, we've done some like backwoods hiking and um, at the in the morning like you have to pack up and walk the next 11 miles you know and if you get too comfortable and you go do a day hike or hang out by the waterfall like uh, you can begin to lose sight of that mountain in the distance so the um, product team and the research team I think it's uh, they've done an awesome job of effectively um, keeping those eight different things uh, active you know that our two-week sprints reflect some uh, element of either, if not each of them, like at least two of them, as we continue to kind of keep an eye on that mountain in the distance, which is a 30 second property transaction. The market research team will identify the group that has like information gathering, the folks who kind of need uh, or can offer the most insights. So if it's the 
Ohio Auditors Association, Recorders Association, title offices, title insurance companies. I mean, they effectively identify first, you know, who who do we need to survey and talk to, uh, and then next, um, you know, what do we need to say and ask, and then um, we we do put pretty much everything we do in front of their, our future customers before we do it, which is another big part of, you know, why. I think we've been able to do a decent amount of stuff in 12 months is that by the time it gets into the engineering engineer's hand um, it's been like pretty well vetted and validated and you know we have various uh, fidelity screens and uh, we do invest time in that when you estimate that you'll be to the point where you can do the 30 second transaction do you have an idea on the time frame there um it's somewhere between three and 20 years so I guess I want to talk a little more about, so I mean, that's a goal, right? 320, hopefully closer to three. Um, but let's talk a little more about both of your goals, um, both within SafeChain and personally for the next five, 10 years. What are you guys thinking about long-term outside of lowering that transaction yeah. time? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I left a, a big corporation, um, you know, I, I had an experience as uh, well translates into effectively the next step, which would be, you know, CTO of a, and it, it's been a lot of fun and very challenging uh, over the last 12 months to help create and uh, staff and build out a startup that is complicated. And it's, you know, it's, it's very different than a, a singularly focused startup. Like we have a lot to do and it's, um, uh, some of those things are very different. So, um, you know, stressing myself, uh, or stress, I say stressing in a positive sense, you know, like um, understanding where my limits are and then uh, working to overcome them. Uh, so, yeah, for personally, outside of a 30 second property transaction, you know, I want to um, grow a team that I've always wanted to be a part of. You know, I've had glimpses of it over the years, you know, individuals or uh, projects that represented like if I could go back there and experience that again I want to want to do that in a sense that is sustainable um, not necessarily a picture of a stereotypical startup either something that represents the character of Columbus the people we'll hire here like I, I'd like to look back one day and feel like I still work at a company that I'm happy to come in to work for every day I think my goal obviously with safe chain is to make sure um, whatever is in my power, I do it so that it's successful. And then personally, it would be to grow as someone and gain um, enough experience that I can continue training and teaching people whatever I know. So what does the team look like today? What's the breakdown structure? You said there's 23 people, 22 25, people? 25, yeah. 25, okay, so not yeah. even close. Um, <laughs> it's, it's close, yeah. So what does that structure look like? Are there, um, there's marketing, there's development, are there salespeople? What does that structure look like? Yeah, yeah we, I mean, we're, we're uh, generally speaking, half engineers in like half of those other categories. We have, uh, in that other half, uh, product, uh, customer success and sales. So you can think of kind of sales cycle. Like we, we try to have, we have like front end and back end sales that, uh, yeah, and our, our marketing um, is today shared by sales and um, external consultants. So we, um, we, but most of the other functions are in house. So you said internal and external sales. How does that break down and how are they selling the product that's still being created? 
by internal, I guess what I mean is um, people who are either fielding inbound or outbound uh, interest for, we have, uh, we of our eight um, t keys, as, I'm, as we refer to them, these eight keys that will unlock a 30-second property transaction. Um, these keys, uh, one of them has a production application, which is called SafeWire. So one of these keys is authentication. It effectively says in order to get a 30-second property transaction, you need to know who the buyers and sellers are you know, digitally, which we, there is precedent for that today. You know, you, when you sign up for a new account, you have to show your ID or a liveness test. You have to show a... a you have to do. You have to log into your bank account or respond to micro ACH deposits. Like that's built. Um, what it does is, when a title office uses it, um, they are um, the the risk of wire fraud is uh, effectively erased. Mm -hmm. And um, wire fraud is a interesting. Pro uh, it's a problem in the industry today. Like uh, there's like literally, and I'm not kidding. Like this isn't the sales speech. Like this is a fun. Um, you know, uh, interview the wire fraud is a billion. Like there are a billion dollars a year attempted wire fraud with real estate title transactions. So if you're going through a real estate transaction today, you you're one in four chance of having somebody send you an email saying like, "Hey, I'm your title office. Instead of wiring your down payment to us, uh, to the account that I originally sent you, uh, wire your deposit to this other account." Like and you like and that email may come from your realtor because that person has like hacked your e your realtor's email account, so there's a very sophisticated wire fraud going on right now. Um, Safewire is a product that's in production today that um, you know, people are uh, responding to. They you know submit requests for demos. We uh, we have uh, a number of active customers, paying customers using it, um, but it's yeah one of eight things that we need to accomplish. So moral of that story, Conquerors, if your realtor sends you an odd email saying to wire your funds somewhere else, I'd call them. But uh, we wrote it to Mike and I. We'll get right, it taken right, care of. Yeah, we'll get it taken care of. But um, <laughs> I guess probably a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show, which is centered on the theme of the show, live uncomfortably. And not telling you too much about why we chose that or what we think about it. What do you two think of when you hear the phrase and how can you apply it to your lives and career? Really? That's a very uncomfortable question. Um, <laughs> I think it's um, Those it's two about, years of college in Tehran. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, I think it's about challenging yourself and doing things that you're, you know, it's out of your personality and it's like stepping outside of your box and what your usual day-to-day -day character and personality and what things you're you know, used to do and doing those. Yeah, and Lily, you jumped in without even getting to see the outline, so you had no idea that question was coming. <laughs> Again, really appreciate you joining us today. And so, Rob. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, I've lived uncomfortably intentionally for my entire career. Like, I, 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 I have many different internal mantras around, you know, I've never accepted a job I thought I was qualified for. <laughs> The, this idea of you know perfect balance brings perfect stagnation. Like get being comfortable has never been my goal, you know. And in doing so, as I've grown in my career, it's being able to kind of work with people so that they can also be uncomfortable. You know, I feel like some of the best positive stress in my life and career has been through 
not being sure if I would be successful. And then coming out the other end, having like worked harder than I ever had. So um, yeah, that said, uh, what it means to me is um, staying focused on, um, you know, balance is not the goal. Like, uh, you know, working hard and uh, learning new things is, yeah. I think, uh, I, I feel like because my um, wife and kids are going to listen to this at some point, I hope, uh, I should mention, you know, that's what uh, I you know, try to instill in them as well. And, um, you know, that's uh, uh, just an important part of being uh, successful. Absolutely. Well, that's a great answer for both of you. Thank you both for joining us today. We've had a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Sure. Thanks. Thank you. It was fun. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. And before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. Our next sponsor you might be slightly familiar with. You may recall a previous Conquering Columbus episode we did, episode number 26, we interviewed Stuart Crane, who bootstrapped his healthware software business to an eventual $43 million exit in 2013. Well, he's back at it with a new startup called Voice Metrics, based here in Columbus, Ohio. Stuart's new company got going last fall, and they've landed a number of customers, including Crosschecks, which is one of Columbus's high-flying VC-backed companies. Voice Metrics is a voice application available for Alexa, Google Assistant, and Siri that allows businesses to get their KPIs, metrics, and any business information just by asking. To give you an example of how this works, here's what it sounds like. Open voice metrics. Good morning, Robert. Our sales yesterday was $17,500, and we had 24 new signups. Website traffic is up 13%, and we are 82% to our monthly revenue goal. Have a great day. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You can drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.